The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, and disinformation. Lots of disinformation. Sunday, the 12th of February, 2023. The war in Ukraine continues. Indeed, it's almost a year old. And Russian disinformation is becoming somewhat unhinged. Well, joining me to explore that further is Elise Thomas, freelance journalist and open source intelligence analyst with the Institute of Strategic Dialogue and other places. This will be fun. In this episode, we discuss whether chat GPT will change everything. As with pretty much anything in this field, it'll be the spammers and the scammers who figure it out first. Russia has been calling everyone in NATO Nazis, and that's down to... The moral clarity that the framing of Nazism gives to you. Um, Anything is justifiable if you're doing it to a Nazi. And how could we not talk about Elon Musk and all the changes at Twitter? I try not to spend too much time trying to put myself inside Elon Musk's head. It's a strange and dark place, and I don't want to be there. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm polystomatious Russian disinformation campaign. Good heavens. With Elise Thomas. Elise Thomas, thanks for joining me again. Oh, thank you for thank you for inviting me on. Well, look, I, I want to kick off with... Um, some history. I don't know how much history you did. It wasn't my strong point. But according to uh, Dmitry Kisalyov uh, of Russian State TV, apparently 80 years ago, it was at Stalingrad that Russia beat back the onslaught of the collective West against our country. All of Europe was on the side of fascist Germany. Does that fit with your... Memory strangely of how no. World War Two worked. Strangely, strangely, no. That is that is not what we learned in school. Um, although I fear it may be what Russian children are learning in school um, mm. going forward from from this moment. Um, yeah, we've we've sort of the the way in which the Russian propaganda around the war in Ukraine has appropriated the history of World War Two is is a super super interesting topic. I can't. I'm not going to pretend that I am a buff on like World War Two history because I know somebody will write in with like details. Um, Yes, and I'll plug here the fantastic uh, YouTube channel from Time Ghost TV that is doing World War II in real time. So they're up to February 1944 at the moment. They're doing... Wow. So when when did they start? uh, Well, what's that? Five years, four years ago. Wow. Yeah, four and a half (laughs) years ago. And they do 20... Their main one is The War in Real Time, 20 minutes a week, and they've got a parallel one, The War Against Humanity, which is not just the Holocaust, the war crimes, whatever. It actually lumps uh, the Allied bombing of cities in amongst the War Against Humanity and war crimes things, so they're Mm -hmm. quite neutral. But it's from Time Ghost TV. Uh, It's called World War II in Real Time. I'm a huge fan. It's presented by actual historians... Uh, yes. Anyway, enough plugs <laughs> for them. <laughs> I'm going to check that out. That sounds really interesting. It, it is. And it's, it, they've done the Cuban Missile Crisis day by day. Nice. So, yep. Yeah, imp- I, really, I really enjoy when you sort of like get to go back. Because, yeah, I, I have also been not been watching this, but listening to a lot of sort of history podcasts recently, looking, reading reading a lot of books about sort of the start of the various world wars. And it's, it's just kind of interesting when you go back and you sort of realise that at the time a lot of it did look quite shambolic and ridiculous. And you sort of flash forward to the 2020s and you're like, so it looks a bit shambolic and ridiculous, yeah. but it's a bit scary. <laughs> that's, that's basically the world is shambolic and ridiculous. Yeah. Like while it's happening, it just looks a bit stupid. But 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 over time, it builds up into something really stupid. Speaking of the start of World War Two, though, <laughs> sorry, uh, Ma- no, that's all right. <laughs> Completely derailed this already. Maz, well, if you didn't, I would. Uh, Maz Johanovich, who her day job is she's commander of ten squadron in the Royal Australian Air Force, uh, but she grew up in Serbia, and at school there, she learned that indeed World War Two started in 1941. Uh, because the whole Molotov-Ribbentrop years, which is when uh, Stalin's uh, Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were in fact allied before tearing apart Poland. Yeah, they they don't talk about that. And, of course, when she grew up, uh, Serbia would have had a distinctly a communist government. But 
I, we should say, I mean, the word disinformation, I mean, we'll talk about the specifics of what's happening at the moment, obviously, but the word disinformation actually is a Russian word, desinformatia, which they started using in the 1950s as this is part of our grand strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a fantastic book that I imagine probably a lot of listeners of this podcast have already read, but if anybody hasn't, let me plug it. Um, it's called Active Measures by Thomas Ridd, um, oh. and it's it's a book all about about the the history of Soviet Soviet disinformation operations, and it's absolutely fascinating, like like incredible. It, it used to be, and I, like I say this with a certain note of admiration because some of it was like truly like interesting and creative, and I sort of compare that to some of the you know like two-cent bot campaigns we get now, and I think, hmm, hmm, things have gone downhill. Thomas Ridd is amazing. I interviewed him for a different podcast, the one that was called the ZDNet one anyway. I'll – I don't even know whether it's online. I'll link to it if it is. But, yeah, he is is a a remarkable – Academic, well, expert on all of, all of this kind of stuff, but yeah. So what's what's happening now? We we certainly have Russia trying to give its spin on the Ukraine war because it's all NATO's yeah. fault. It's they're Nazis. Well, I mean, so the the so so from from the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, and when I say the beginning, I mean twenty fourteen. Um, Russia has sort of drawn on this frame of Nazism and, and fighting Nazis as sort of the excuse, fighting Nazis who are sort of oppressing the Russian-speaking people in the east of Ukraine and now apparently the Russian-speaking people in all of Ukraine um, as their their excuse for, for invading Ukraine. Um, and, like, fundamentally, like, I, I think it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's a few different things. It's sort of appealing to... Um, the historical and cultural memories within Russia of um, World War II and sort of the incredible suffering of the Russian people, um, but also sort of that that great victory for them. Um, and also, and, and, and sort of drawing on that sense of um, the necessity of national suffering for the greater good, um, sort of like creating creating a sense within the country that it is worthwhile committing committing to this suffering um, in order to, to achieve the glorious outcome. Um, and secondly, I think also there's the, the the moral clarity that the framing of Nazism gives to you in, in the sense that, you know, like Nazis sort of are the, the ultimate bad guys. You know, if you want to really offend someone, you call them a Nazi. Um, anything is justifiable if you're doing it to a Nazi. Um, and so, like, if they say they're Nazis, then that, that's as close as they can come to, to a framing that will justify a completely unprovoked evasion. Recently, I, I read a paper from my friends at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, they're my friends because I wrote a couple of papers for them on Australia's encryption policies and history of. Uh, but they did one recently on Russia's information war, and they make the point that regime security, as, as in in this case, obviously, uh, Vladimir Putin's um, safety of continuing to being boss, is kind of impossible to separate from all of this information warfare that happens, that it's just as much for a domestic audience as the international audience. Do you see yeah, that? Like I, yeah, completely agree. Um, and I, I think that is true sort of in authoritarian regimes across the world. Like Xi Jinping's first audience is in China. It's not us. Mm. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I, th- I think the same is through, true for authoritarian leaders everywhere because if they're not in control at home, they're not, they're not in control. Um, having said that, like, I, I think it is also um, important not to, to overstate the significance of some of the like truly wacky out there stuff that we see um, on Russian TV shows that again, then gets kind of filtered through Twitter and then sort of into, into Western media as sort of, you know, look at, look at what the crazy Russians are saying on TV. Um, you know, I think there can be a tendency to sort of think that because it's said on Russian TV, it's something that Russian people necessarily believe. Um, which is a little bit like, you know, taking some of the stuff that is said on Sky After Dark and saying this is what all of Australia thinks. Um, like there has been, um, we don't have a lot of great statistics for, for what, how people in Russia feel about the war. There's not really, there's a little Levada Centre, which is sort of one of the, has long been cited as like the, the only remaining independent pollster in Russia. There are some question marks, I think, there um, around, certainly around their, their ability to operate. Um, now under the conditions of the war. So we don't really have any good statistics. We do know that there has been um, a significant drop. I went and looked up the numbers. So it's uh, a drop from 86% to 65% of Russians who are watching state TV since the beginning of the full-scale invasion in 2022, which is a really significant 
drop. That's that's a large number of people who are choosing to tune out. Um, so I, I think that's that's kind of worth keeping in mind when you're sort of seeing some of these this crazy rants from like Solovyov and, and some of these other um, Russian TV hosts. Um, I think you know that's that's going to be inevitable, isn't it? Because you know when a, when a war kicks off, you see all of the the imagery of tanks rolling across the border and flags being raised and so on. But after what's it? It's 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 just a few days short of a year ago. Mm. Um, now we've got lots of Russian parents getting the letter saying, "Terribly sorry, but your son is not coming home," um, and they're they're getting phone calls from you know soldiers in the field saying that this is this is not what we were sold. They didn't welcome yeah. us with flowers and 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 gift baskets. Yeah, and that's why, you know, and, and I think that is the true threat in terms of um, Russia's internal stability. It, it is the threat from people within Russia who didn't care much before, but then their son was sent to war and their son came home in a box. Like that's that's the real threat to Putin and that's, that's the narrative that he has to control. Um, and so that's part of why we've seen sort of particularly over the past few months um, this shift away from sort of, you know, like because initially when they, when, when they initially invaded Ukraine, it's the, the rough rationale was sort of we have to, invade Ukraine and protect the um, Russian-speaking Ukrainians from the Nazis in Kiev. And then it became, we must, uh, then there was the whole Ukrainian biolabs thing. It's like we invaded to stop them unleashing these US bioweapons. And then they went back to Nazis for a bit. And then there was some other stuff in between. <laughs> it changes a lot. Um, and, uh. and then they've gone on to, um, and now they've kind of moved on to, like this is a war between Russia and NATO. Um, this is a war for Russian survival. Um, they're sort of making it sort of like, taking on this increasingly like existential framing that if Russia doesn't win this war in Ukraine, Russia will be obliterated from the face of the earth. And part of that, I think, is about sort of um, they need like a, an increasingly more powerful rationale to justify why they're taking increasingly more extreme measures, like taking your son off to war and bringing him home in a box. Um, and I think sort of if, and, and the, the conundrum facing Putin now is like, do they do another round of force mobilization? Do they start sending the conscripts um, into fight in Ukraine? And sort of, the, you know, particularly with, with the conscripts, um, there's sort of this sense that, you know, because the conscripts, they're sort of, you know, 18 to 20 years old, there's sort of this mm. sense that they won't really be sent to war, that you're sort of giving your child over to the care of the state and the state will look after them. And so actually sending the conscripts to war, I think actually technically would require, because Russia still hasn't formally declared war, so I think it would actually te technically require that's, them to that's declare That's right, yeah. This is war. a special um, military operation mm. to protect the Russian-speaking peoples, yeah. Yeah, although there, there is a sort of a, there is a, a twist to that, which is that they can be deployed anywhere within sort of um, Russian territory without a declaration of war. Russia might say that the, remember they did those sham referendums in the annexed areas of Ukraine, mm. they might say these are Russian territory, therefore we can send them there. So they could sort of, you know, find a way to sort of squidge around the, the technical requirements there, but but at that, least that's... but at least how do ninety percent of the people of the Kherson region said they would rather be part of Russia. I mean, how can you possibly <laughs> argue against a hard yeah. fact like that? We um so in my my work with um, the Center for Information Resilience, we we did a series looking at sort of life under occupation in Kherson, and my goodness, it was grim. In addition to sort of like like looking at sort of like the, the the facts on the ground, we produced a report that people I would encourage people to go and read. Um, but it was sort of this like this series of sort of interesting questions about how it made me think a lot about how the state works and how state power works because you sort of had Russia coming in and sort of trying to create their own um, water utilities company. They're like you know now you have to pay us for the water utilities. Now you have to um, set up a, an account with us for your phone. Now you have to do this. Now you have to do that. It was sort of um, the the line that I had, um, which I think got made it into the report, it was soldiers invade but bureaucrats occupy. And it was that bureaucratic level of occupation, the way that they moved into people's, the, the bureaucrats moved into people's lives, moved into people's homes, moved into people's finances um, in such a um, pernicious way. Um, it was re really, it really sort of stuck with me. It really made a, a strong impression. Some people have said, you know, the, this is a Russian playbook. Is there a really a playbook? Is there? I mean, figuratively speaking, it's pro probably not. Well, there may be a manual. I don't know. But is there kind of a a, a general way that that Russia does this? I don't know if the, the microphone picked up my sigh when you said the phrase Russian playbook. <laughs> I really, I really hate that phrase because right. it is used so it is used so much that it is meaningless. Um, mm. And particularly, like people will 
And we, we hear this sort of in the disinformation space all the time. They'll say Russian playbook and they're talking about, um, you know, what Russia did in the US in 2016 um, or something like that, sort of ignoring the fact that there is nothing sort of uniquely Russian about that. A lot of countries do that sort of thing. Um, it's not really clear what playbook means, like what is a playbook, what is the play, what are you talking about? Um, so I just hate that phrase in general. Um, because I think it is overused and kind of non-specific. But as we were saying before, um, when we were talking about Thomas Ridd's book, there is a long history of this sort of behaviour mm. um, from from uh, Russia and previously the Soviet Union. And actually, again, sort of going back to the work that we were doing looking at the occupation in Kherson, um, shortly after that I went um, on a trip like just as a tourist to um, Tallinn in Estonia and to Vilnius in Lithuania, um, Neither of those cities I knew much about of the history before. Um, went there, sort of learned learned a bit about sort of their time under Soviet rule, under Soviet occupation. Um, mm. And it was really, really striking to me, having just been looking at Herson, how similar some of those processes were um, in terms of sort of the, the astroturf, like people's groups and popular groups and sort of the sham referendums, um, all of that sort of fake um, manufacturing of the appearance of consent um, it was really striking to me how similar that was to what we were what we were seeing at the time in Hassan, which thankfully now has been recaptured by Ukraine. I think every country that existed uh, under the Soviet rule, uh, sort of post World War II, is very conscious of their need not to let that happen again. Uh, and a plug for another YouTube channel, Perun P E R U N. He he was originally on on YouTube as just a gamer from Australia. But when the war kicked off in the 2020 kickoff of war, uh, sorry, in the 2022 kickoff of war in uh, Ukraine, he suddenly revealed himself actually to be an expert in military logistics and economics and manufacturing pipelines and such things and has been doing, uh, as another person described him, of the best black and orange uh, slideshow presentations on the internet, but he really goes deeply into supply pipelines, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and notes that Estonia essentially sent the vast majority of its artillery to Ukraine, even though they're on the border with Russia, and 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 their attitude is, well, if if NATO is meant to be about collective defence, then what are, what are we defending against again? This kind of looks like it. This kind of looks yeah. like exactly what we're meant to be doing here. Yeah, and, and Tallinn and Vilnius are just covered in Ukrainian flags, like like Ukrainian flags everywhere. They're on the government buildings, they're on private houses, they're in people's cars, they're just everywhere. Actually, on the in the buses in in Vilnius, like the just like the municipal buses, they have like you know how the little flashing sign on the top, and they like they send the bus route, and then it flips over and it says Vilnius Heart Ukraine. Like on the buses, wow! Um, like it's like yeah, there is a, just a phenomenal level of support for Ukraine. Um, and actually, it, actually in Tallinn, I, I walked past the the Russian embassy, and the Russian embassy in Tallinn, they've the, the Tallinn authorities have set up like a kind of a fence in front of the Russian embassy, and people have stuck like anti-war signs, like teddy bears soaked in blood, all of this stuff to the fence, and then there are there are cops like sitting there just watching people in case anybody tries to mess with the fence. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. Well, of course, Russian disinformation is a, a global thing. Last week, uh, the BBC reported on actual disinformation campaigns targeting Africa. A large uh, social network that promotes anti-Western and pro-Kremlin ideas in French-speaking Africa has been discovered. Now, it's called Russosphere. Posts typically accuse France of modern-day colonialism. They eulogise Vladimir Putin and uh, call the Ukrainian army Nazis and Satanists. Well, experts say such uh, misinformation drives mistrust between African nations and the West. I wouldn't have thought this is especially new, that, that global disinformation is, is <laughs> part of the Russian playbook. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Okay, go on. <laughs> but uh, as we just heard there, the idea, it's, it's a social media thing, it's in French and it's targeting the former French colonies, saying the French are still colonialist and, of course, they're Nazis because they're part of NATO. Yeah, no, like there, there's there's nothing particularly new about that that's been going on for, for years and years and years. Actually, one of the first, like, info ops that I ever wrote about was um, uh, in a piece for the Daily Beast looking at um, the Central African Republic and some of these sort of pro-Russian disinformation campaigns going on there, which continue. Um, 
So, I mean, yeah, like the, obviously like targeting of Africa is nothing new. And I think also these, um, I think I think also sort of a, a point that I would make about uh, pro-Russian disinformation campaigns in Africa um, is that often they are, you know, it's often it's more complex, I think, than sort of the Western media coverage portrays it. Like I think that you have this Western media coverage that sort of portrays as, you know, like, uh, Russia, this all-powerful actor coming in and, you know, launching this disinformation campaign on this unsuspecting and naive local population. Um, whereas actually when you sort of look at it in detail, there's often a lot of involvement from kind of local political players and sort of people who are, or, or commercial players, people who are sort of boosting um, perceptions of Russia uh, for their own benefit. Like I, I, I did a, a piece um, a couple of years ago uh, focused on Kenya, which didn't end up getting published because we were afraid of being sued. Um, oh. But it uh, was looking at something that initially looked very much like a, a Russian disinformation campaign um, and sort of looking into it in more detail, I sort of was able to, to tie it back to a um, significant political and business figure um, who was aligned with Russia and who in whose interest it was to promote, like, positive perceptions of Russia. Um, and you sort of see that... Uh, exactly well not exactly but you, you see a similar thing in the central african republic um in terms of there's a lot of again like pro-russian um information campaigns but when you kind of scratch the surface you realize they're actually pro tuadera campaigns the president of the central african republic is very closely aligned with russia and so obviously it's in his interest to promote positive perceptions of russia because he is so closely entwined uh, russia and 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 the wagner group obviously uh, and i think it's worth maybe drawing a distinct we're starting to draw more of a distinction between wagner and, and the russian state Wagner, for those who haven't caught up, is the uh, well. It's essentially a mercenary army, and it's run by a bloke whose name escapes me, but his nickname is often Putin's chef. Evgeny Prigozhin. That say that again. Evgeny Prigozhin is his name. That's the fellow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also Putin's chef because he literally is Putin's chef. He rose to power and connections in in the Russian establishment by getting a whole lot of dodgy catering contacts uh, contracts. For the government yeah. and the armed forces and so on, but you can you can the, you the can Guardian get photos of him. To, sorry, I was, yeah. I was gonna, just going to make a plug for the for the Guardian's recent article about Prigozhin and his history, which is fascinating. We will, of course, link to that in the podcast website because, as regular listeners know, you know this, don't you, listener? That I link to far too many things as we go. I go through and everything we mention. I do fact check yep. things. Um, takes a while, but I think it's worth it. Well, speaking of fact checks, uh, let's shift the topic to Elon Musk and Twitter. So, I, I, I would just like to clarify at this point that anything that I say is my opinion and not the opinion of any of my employers. Right. And I don't have employers. Well, I do have employers, but so we go. <laughs> now, We've, we've all seen the news about Twitter and the takeover and how that's shifting. I'll, I'll link to one piece that's just one example of that, that, that Elon Musk uh, ordered Twitter staff to suspend a left-wing activist account. Now, in that case, it was a guy called Chad Loder, who in my mind uh, was more associated with cybersecurity and cybersecurity awareness, but he's now uh, one of the activists documenting racist and far-right attackers including and, and gathering evidence uh, for, on people who participated in the January 6th insurrection, I think we're calling it these days, uh, uprising, etc., but that's not the only example. Uh, there's there's plenty of evidence that uh, when Musk said he was creating a content moderation council to have consistent policies, what's actually unfolded is his personal whim. Yes. You're nodding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yes, that, that is a statement of fact. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. <sighs> they do have a new head of content moderation whose, whose name is briefly escaping me. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure who is doing content moderation anymore. <laughs> Genuinely, like I'm, I'm not sure how many people are on that team. I'm not sure how much the team still exists or what exactly they're focusing on anymore. I mean, it, it, nearly all of it went. Nearly all of it was was oh. thrown, you know, sacked uh, because uh, Musk believes that everything can be done with software. It's just a matter of software. Yeah. Why have we got all these people doing this manually? He thought, and uh, mm. certainly this. Uh, the Australian office is, is closed. Uh, there's no one um, doing content moderation in East Asian and Southeast Asian languages. They're all gone. 
Uh, so there's a there's a tip for you if you really want to sure. do your Nazi propaganda, do it in in Malay or or Vietnamese. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I mean, like it's a, a, yeah, it's a real um, particularly on the kind of the trust and safety front. It's it is um, particularly unfortunate that this had to happen to Twitter, which has been like consistently um, as an external researcher, Twitter has been consistently the best platform to work with. Obviously, no platform is is perfect, but um, it's consistently the most open to criticism, the most willing to sort of engage with research, um, the most um, genuinely, like I, I always felt sort of dealing with with Twitter employees that they were genuinely interested and they genuinely cared, uh, which is not mm. something I could say about all of the other social media platforms. Um, and uh, particularly Yoel Roth, who was, was head of um, trust and safety at Twitter, um, you know, I, a lot of respect for for y'all. Like a lot of a lot of people in this in this field have a lot of respect for him. Um, he deserved much much better than than the way he's been treated. Um, yeah, and that was Musk. weird because he was even uh, initially supporting. He really Musk tried. And, yeah, yeah. He, he I, really, I don't know if he was. I don't know if he was supporting, no, no, supporting Musk so much Musk, as he he really wanted to protect Twitter. Like he, I think he yes. genuinely genuinely was committed to Twitter and trying to trying to protect Twitter in very difficult circumstances. Uh, and yet, um, as soon as uh, you know, he did something that Musk definitely didn't approve of. Musk went to his go-to insult and implied he was a pedophile. Yes, and now I believe he has had to go into move hiding. Ass. Yeah, going like yeah. literally go into hiding, um, which is a shocking and appalling thing to have done to anybody. There's a school of thought which says that Musk's changes are quite deliberate; that it's not stumbling incompetence and and just Silicon Valley boy mindlessness, that his takeover of Twitter is about, was always about, a shift to a far-right narrative. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's um, what it is at the heart rather than just, I, I you know, an ego thing? No, look, I, I try not to spend too much time trying to put myself inside Elon Musk's head. It's a strange and dark place and I don't want to be there. Um, and I, I think it's also fair to say um, at this point that whatever Musk originally intended for Twitter is not what is happening to Twitter. Like mm. he, he is, is like careening all over the place um, in terms of what, what is happening here. Like I, I, I do think it's clear that there is a, a fairly alarming drift in terms of the accounts that he's engaging with, um, sort of the, the people that he's responding to um, towards the fringe rights. Like, I, it's a, it's astounding that I'm genuinely concerned about the political influence of Cat Turd 2. Um, <laughs> that's where we're at. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I, I, I don't know whether it was a plan from the start or whether that's just how it's ended up. Um, I, I, I do think there's a certain irony in the, in the I yeah I, th- I think from the start it was clear that Elon Musk really liked Twitter like he really really liked it he really enjoyed it that's why he wanted to own it. Well, um, exactly. He it, loved it. People were were praising him and his work and his cars and his spacecraft and his weird tunnels. His weird tunnels. I don't know. Like I, I think there's you know something sort of I don't know almost like Greek myth like in in the idea of sort of the rich man who loved something so he owned it and then he destroyed it. Um, yeah. It is, it is a great tragedy. All right, look, we won't dig too far down into that. Uh, right now, let's take a quick break to do the housekeeping. Lucky for you, dear listener, there's not a lot of housekeeping uh, this time. Uh, The one thing I really wanted to mention is to keep the following dates free because they're when I think I'll be doing the Public House Forum episodes. Saturday the 18th of March and Saturday the 15th of April. Now, the March one uh, will be somewhere in the Sydney CBD, probably in Haymarket or around Central Station somewhere, so relatively easy to get Two, um, not sure about the April one. I'm, I'm toying with the idea of doing it in Melbourne, um, if I have the budget for that. Um, but if you have a preference for, say, Sunday rather than Saturday, get in touch, harass me, all of that. Uh, I'll confirm those dates in the next uh, couple of weeks once I've had a chance to, uh, well, talk to potential guests because uh, their availability will be important. Now, those two Public House Forum episodes were made possible 
as were so many things by my recent crowdfunding campaign, the uh, 9pm Hardware Refresh 2023. Now, thank you to everyone who contributed to that. I'm amazed at the response. We went way past target for, uh, I raised more than eight thousand dollars with with your help so that's gone into a new macbook pro a new dell monitor uh, a new broadcast microphone uh, which i'm not using today because i wanted to use the same microphone as i used uh, for the recording the other day otherwise it kind of might sound a bit different and that's unprofessional um, what else? And I'm ordering the camera next week. I, I'm 98% of the, my way to making the final decision on that. Uh, so expect an update very soon. Everyone um, who, who contributed, I will, of course, be doing the formal thank yous in due course. Uh, what else do I need to tell you about? Uh, well, uh, in terms of other episodes of the podcast, not sure how that'll go yet. I'm still planning out um, March. It's going to be busy for some other reasons. Uh, but for this episode in particular, because as you know, this podcast is made possible by you, the generous listener. Uh, I want to thank uh, Kaleda Albinak, Katrina Jetty, and Stuart Hargraves, who threw in even a little more cash as time went on, although some of those I think were thank yous for the 8pm quiz thing. It's happening. And yes, do lobby me for further episodes of the 8pm quiz during winter. Uh, but right now, if you'd like to join those people in, in their generosity, please go to uh, the, the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. There's several ways to send me money. Um, and it'd be very nice if you did. All right, back to the back to the episode. That sound, dear listener, is the glass jar of transparency, which as uh, you know, because you listen every time, uh, is full of little pieces of folded up paper. Each piece of paper has a word written on it that a supporter has paid for. So, Elise, I'm pulling one out. Oh, the suspense. What is it? <laughs> Carletta Abianak, who's a regular, has said... Random word. So I will now go to randomword.com or whatever I use. And the word is wristlet, a wristband or small strap worn around the wrist. That. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm like, yes, that's a thing. Yes. That is a a thing. I guess you call it a wristband. A bracelet. A wristband. We could, what, I guess I mean, we, could de- we could debate, like, is, is a wristlet better than a bracelet? Um, that's that's really all that I've got. <laughs> which part of your body is the brace? Sorry? So if a wristlet goes around the wrist. I think, it's, I think, bra- I think, but I think brace is kind of referring to, you know, like when you have like a, like a brace of rabbits. Yeah, but that means like, you know, two. You, a brace is I don't know. I don't know the, the etymology of brace. Oh, well, I'm going to have to look this up and I suspect all of this will be edited out because it's just silly. (laughs) Just what is the etymology of bracelet? Oh, from the old French brass, an arm. Yeah. So it's a thing you put around your arm. There you go. Or wrist. Okay, so one of those things on your upper arm, um, I forget what they're called, but they could be a bracelet too. Could also be a bracelet. But a wristlet is what we're looking at here. And do you remember, is this still a thing? I, I, I don't interact with the world very much in a normal human way, <laughs> but are, are coloured wristbands to denote your support of a particular cause still a thing? I mean, they're around. Um, I don't, I, you, know, you don't see a lot of people sort of just wearing them in general, I think. Mm. Um, They've sort of been yeah, replaced by Fitbits. Fitbit? What? Fitbit. Well, you wear that Fitbit. around your wrist to track oh, your... Oh, I mean, yes, yeah. Fitness, I was like, tra- <laughs> fitness trackers. <laughs> I, was like, what? I, th- I thought you meant in terms of like showing your support for a cause with your Fitbit, and I was like, what that is. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. Remember when Twibbons were a thing on Twitter? No. That caused com- complete shift of democracy in Egypt, didn't it? Twibbins? Twibbins. What is a twibbin? What is a twibbin? Oh, dear. Okay. It, it was uh, you, you put a little diagonal coloured stripe on your Twitter profile picture to denote uh-huh. your support for a cause. So if twibbins right. were a thing today, you'd have uh, a, a blue and yellow one to support Ukraine. 
No, I wouldn't because I don't think those. I don't think that does anything, and I'll just I'll just continue doing the war crimes investigations. <laughs> I feel like that's more useful. We will <laughs> we, we will come to that. Um, oh, Carletta, I'm not quite sure you got your money's worth there, but you did pick random <laughs> words, so you get what Should you we, get. I'm going to pull out another go with one. A different word. Yeah. Yeah. Just because. Ah, oh, Philip Mer- Philip Merrick Philip Merrick has also said random word. Oh no. Oh no. Well, okay. Really? Did you know that woundy means something that causes wounds? A chiliahedron is a thousand sided solid figure. Bodge. Um, Clumsy workmanship. A bodge job. Yes, I did know that one. Okay. Polystomatous, Uh. meaning having many mouths. A really long bow we could draw back to like disinformation and the polystomatousness. <laughs> Should we have a go? I mean, we did say that it, it's not a united wow. effort. Um, but that, that is true. And, there, and no, actually, 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 let's go I've, with got that. It, I've got it. I've got, got it. I've got it. Um, so, so I think one of the, actually the really interesting things about kind of the Russian like information push um, in the war in Ukraine is actually we've seen this real shift towards crowdsourcing. Um, so like away from, oh, away from sort of those like, you know, relatively small, relatively controlled, like, um, bot networks or sort of fake inauthentic account networks that you sort of like associate with that classic, I'm not going to use the phrase Russian playbook, but that kind of classic internet research agency sort of 2016 operation. We've seen. Well, I was going to say internet research agency because that was also founded by Putin's chef. Yeah. Yeah. Prigozhin. Yes. Um, and they have like a, yeah, the, the the transformation in the Wagner Group over the past year or so has been really, really interesting. Hang on, let me finish the, the previous thought and then I'll come back yes. to this one. Um, so the previous thought that I was going to is that we've seen this real shift towards sort of um, crowdsourcing different, different forms of kind of disinformation um, and also sort of uh, doxing and sort of like these kind of like mass movements that are, are probably centrally directed in some way, um, but I think are, are significantly composed of um, genuine, authentic Russian people who support the war and want to get involved, um, also like genuine supporters around the world. So we've seen, um, I, I, I read a piece uh, around like March or April last year on this uh, this group called the Information Defence Network. Um, and so what, what, what they are is sort of a, a group of volunteer, genuinely volunteer translators um, who are taking Russian propaganda, Russian state media, and just translating it into a bunch of different languages and distributing it throughout all of their channels. They are um, super interesting, super organised, and uh, yeah, just an, an intriguing example of this sort of um, genuinely grassroots model of propaganda and disinformation, potentially with um, some leaks, uh, some some sort of direction, but predominantly like genuine, genuine just supporters of. Russia. Um, the other sort of interesting thing that we're seeing, um, which is maybe sort of a, a segue into to talking about OSINT, is um, the Rebar channel, um, which is a Rebar, OSINT. R-E-B-A-R, like the building material? R- R-Y-B-A-R. Okay. Um, yeah, so they, they are a, a Telegram channel predominantly. I think they, they may have a Twitter account as well. Um Actually, let me, let me check if they have a Twitter account as well. They definitely have a Telegram channel. Um, and they are sort of a OSINT channel, like ostensibly sort of putting up OSINT about the war um, from a pro-Russian perspective. Um, they, do have, they do have Twitter accounts. And they, they yeah, are, are, are an interesting group because they sort of tend to get cited quite a lot, um, including even by sort of Western commenters. Um, there's been a really interesting investigation into them by The Bell, which is a um, Russian uh, media outlet um, who I think now are based outside of Russia, um, sort of looking at them and sort of finding that it was predominantly, because there was a lot of sort of speculation about who was behind Rebar because it's an, it's an anonymous Telegram account. Um, the Bell sort of concluded that it was basically just a couple of guys, like just like no nobody sort of like, you know, um, was it a government agency? It was just just a couple of couple of dudes, um, but that they think that now the channel has been sort of approached. One of their sources told them that the channel has been approached by the FSB and has been told, you know, when the FSB gives them a tap on the shoulder and says you must publish this, they must publish this. Mm. Um, and so that's like an interesting example of sort of how um, you have this blend now um, between sort of uh, genuine grassroots efforts by Russians and supporters of Russia around the world um, 
and and you know a bit of a, a wink and a nudge and a you know fist in the back um, from the <laughs> the authorities. And that all makes it. Much harder to figure out what's real and what isn't. Well, thank you, uh, Philip Merrick, for that uh, trigger word, uh, even though you didn't choose it. Um, if you would like a trigger word in this podcast, um, well, go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. You will see how it all works there. Well, actually, it's all very confusing, but go there anyway. I'll tidy it up soon. Probably. this final segment, Elise, let's talk about where all this is heading. We, we've we've talked there about how open source intelligence is now being, well, we, we sort of hinted that it's now being distorted. It's now being freelanced out. Uh, Perun, in his uh, analysis of the, the whole military economics of the war in Ukraine, has noted that um, certain open source intelligence uh, players hear the scare quotes there, dear listener, uh, are clearly Russian propagandists because they're just making up numbers in terms of losses and ground gained and all of that. Where does this leave us? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a great question. I don't really have a don't really have a good answer. I mean, so like we're kind of in this interesting we're in this interesting space for open source intelligence as a field, um, and it have been for a few years, I think, as sort of like the, as like OSINT kind of like transforms from like a community of people doing, you know, very nerdy things on their own time and sort of like talking amongst themselves on Twitter into being a, um, yeah, a professional field um, and to some extent an industry um, and also a um media niche as well like you sort yeah. of see all these people all these the people who are now kind of content creators and they're sort of um making making a living off their you know their sub stacks or their patreon or whatever um doing OSINT investigations um and you know and there's there's a lot of pluses that come with that transformation um you know the major plus being you know for example i am now employed to do OSINT rather than just doing <laughs> it you know in my spare time so you know, it's like, always I, a bonus like, like, yeah it's always a plus so I've been thinking a lot about how we do quality control in the OSINT community without doing gatekeeping. Um, mm. So without, for example, and by gatekeeping, I mean um, putting up walls to people entering the field. So sort of saying you need this qualification or you need that qualification. Um, because a, lo a lot of the work that you do in, in open source intelligence doesn't, like it doesn't require a qualification necessarily. Um, there's not really like a good like course in OSINT that I would tell people to go and do. Um, you know, a lot of it is about sort of the, the mindset and the approach and sort of the, the commitment to um, rigorous analysis of the facts mm. rather than it is sort of about a specific qualification. Um, but we are reaching the point where there are enough people who are sort of dipping their toes into OSINT, some for good reasons because they're genuinely interested in the problem, they're genuinely interested in the techniques, some for less good reasons because, you know, for example, um, it can drive a lot of clicks on Twitter, um, it can send uh, a lot yes. of money to your Patreon, it can send a lot of money to your Substack, um, or because you are, you know, in the thrall of some sort of a disinformation actor, you may be getting getting involved. Um, it's sort of how we, how we as a community find a way to sort the wheat from the chaff um, and find find the good people and sort of, uh, yeah, sideline the the bad actors. Um, so my, my former colleague at Aspie, Nathan Rusa, who um, I, have you, I don't know if you've interviewed Nathan on this podcast. I, ha I have not. You should. Um, right. Nathan's great. Um, but he, he does just the most phenomenal, like he has the most phenomenal brain for maps of anyone I've ever met, just like a truly unique brain. Um, and he sort of got into that because he is super keen into birds and was like mapping bird environments. Um, and sort of like, you know, someone like him I think would be, or someone like me would be kind of easily like gate kept out. Uh, I, I know exactly the sort of uh, thing you mean. Curiously, journalism itself doesn't necessarily have any formal qualifications, but then, oh, you haven't been at a newspaper or you didn't do a cadetship, you, you really can't be a journalist. And that led into the whole citizen journalist thing of – too long ago. I won't get into that. I'll get grumpy. Um, I did note just then, I looked him up, Nathan Rooser. Uh, a few years ago, he was the guy who realised that all of the uh, soldiers and other people at uh, American bases in places like Syria would wear their Fitbits while doing their exercise outside 
the yard, uh, and then they're posting their results. So that that revealed <laughs> where their their bases were, which otherwise were not on maps. Oh, very clever stuff. Um, one of the things that's been in the news a lot lately, of course, is Chat GPT, which I kept saying wrong in a recent podcast. The uh, AI based chat thing. Now, there's a whole uh, again another school of thought which says that this text about a certain subject, uh, which is now capable of being generated on an industrial scale, uh, will change everything. Will it? Um, <laughs> in the I, ocean I field, not in anything else. Uh, I don't know. It's it, it's hard to say at this stage. Um, I, I think as yet we haven't seen people sort of figure out how to. So, so I mean, I, I guess presuming that it is useful for creating disinformation and that I think is an assumption at this stage because obviously like when you're writing okay. a piece of disinformation, you want it to have certain information in it. Um, and if that information isn't already sitting out there in ChatGPT's corpus, um, then ChatGPT isn't going to write you that. Or, they, or they're going to write you um, something and you're going to have to put significant effort into it um, to edit whatever whatever they've written. So if, if they want to say, you know, like, write me a story about Ukrainian Nazis, um, for example, if you're a Russian actor, it says, write me a story about how, how Zelensky is a Nazi. Um, and ChatGPT doesn't have that out in its corpus, then it might come back and write you something else. But, I mean, you could have your own instance of ChatGP or something like it and fill it yeah. with whatever you want. I mean, yeah, just yeah, give yeah, it all the could. transcripts it, from one news. What, one, what's the American one called? One, uh, one, America? one American News Network. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you, you could do that. Like it, it's sort of whether the <laughs> – what, yeah, what, what are the relative economics? Like is it cheaper to run your own ChatGPT or is it cheaper to hire 50 university students? Um, uh. Uh, which, is, which is what obviously the Internet Research Agency does. Yeah. Um, and potentially what they're going to do more of depending on where their budget is going. Oh, very um, quickly, um, um, a lawyer has just popped into my ear to say I should say that One American News Network is not a Russian disinformation operation. <laughs> good, good, good clarification yeah, to have. Good um, catch. <laughs> so, mm. yes, as <laughs> to my knowledge, and I have no evidence to suggest, etc. Yeah. they're just a um, bunch of fucking American weirdos. <laughs> But yeah, like the, the the impact on disinformation as a field, like I think actually will depend on the relative economics of it, um, and also sort of the and also I you know I would suspect like as as with pretty much anything in this field, it'll be the spammers and the scammers who figure it out first. Like they are yeah. the ones who will work out or porn how to, or porn. I include them in spammers. Um, so oh, I mean, okay. but like uh, they will be the ones who figure out first whether and how this is applicable to sort of those large scale like bot campaigns, um, then we we may start to see it um, come up in disinformation campaigns. I, I would, if that happens, if it's sort of the, if, if they do, if it does work out that the economics makes sense for the spam scam type models, then I'd expect that you'd see it more in um, the sort of clickbait conspiracy type uh, uh, yeah. groups first. So like I, I did a report, if anybody's interested, um, for ISD a couple of years ago now on clickbait conspiracy, which is essentially where people, where sort of these, these groups who, who create different kinds of clickbait and make money off, off ad revenue and sort of a bunch of other monetization models, instead of using porn or instead of using cute animals or other, other forms of clickbait, they use conspiracy theories because conspiracy theorists click on a lot of stuff. And people who are not conspiracy theorists still click on it because they want yeah, to get they a good also laugh. Click on it. They also click on it and they, they make fun of it. Um, but you still clicked, so they still got their money, <laughs> they still won. Um, so, uh, and, and I would suspect, like, you know, if it works for the spam and scam model, it will work for the clickbait conspiracy model. Um, how effective it is for sort of, like, state-linked disinformation campaigns, I'm not sure. I think we're seeing um, in some states, um, it, it, you know, varies depending, obviously, on which state actor you're looking at, a, a real shift away from those kind of large-scale bot campaigns because they're just... Um, by every measure that has ever been applied to them, not very effective. Like they they don't convince people. They don't, they often barely even reach people. Um, so I think we, I think we're sort of seeing a shift away from that and towards more resource effective models. For example, as we were talking about before, this sort of um, mixed model where it's sort of partly genuine grassroots um, action and sort of with a little bit of kind of state direction. Also. Um, the sort of the model 
Um, and, and this, I think, will come out in a piece that I'm, I'm writing relatively soon, maybe out by the time this podcast comes out, um, which the Russian Defence Ministry is using. So Russian Defence Ministry at the start of the war in Ukraine, um, it, the start of the 2022 invasion, rather, sorry, um, created an English language telegram channel. And they just use that to just put out just flat disinformation all the time. Like they just, they get it, they, you know, and it probably cost them peanuts you know like they they get a general up in front of a camera he reads out some nonsense about how they found all this proof that the that the u.s has you know been creating bioweapons in ukraine um it gets picked up by the the fringe right u.s telegram channels organically cost russia nothing um gets laundered onto gateway pundit gets laundered onto fox news gets sort of up in front of marjorie taylor green and marcus rubio um again cost russia nothing cost russia nothing all the way along the chain um and and then sort of they've got it sort of right in in the heart of U.S. politics within you know a matter of hours in some cases, um, cost them nothing and and they did it all in their own name completely overtly. So I, I think that is sort of where we are shifting. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what ChatGPT does. That is all fascinating stuff. We could talk for hours. We are, in fact, out of time because you and I both have things to do for um, actual paying clients uh, <laughs> and so on. Any final thoughts just on what we can do personally to minimise the impact of disinformation? Because, I mean, it's also down to us if we pass it on, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um I don't know. It's, it's it's always the sort of the million dollar question. Don't think that you're too smart to fall for it. Like everybody, everybody will fall for some disinformation at some point. Uh, it's like like scams. Like don't think you're too smart to fall for it. Um, as soon as you start to think that, you're going to fall for it. Um, ask questions. Like check your sources. Um, if something doesn't sound right, then then look it up um, as best you can. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of it. There's not like a, a silver bullet solution, unfortunately. Yeah. It's a shame we can't solve things with technology just like Elon Musk yeah. thinks we can. Yeah. <laughs> At least, Thomas, thank you so much for your time as always. We'll, we'll have to chat more than once a year, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, like if you, if you want to, like I'd be, I realised earlier I said I'd come back to what's happened to Wagner Group this year and I never did. Um, so if you wanted to have a chat about Wagner sometime, I'd be happy to do that because I think they are fascinating and not I, super well yeah. understood. They are seriously fascinating. We will do that. Thank you so much, Elise. Okay, no worries. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all the edict for now. Go to the 9pmedict.com to uh, to get all the credits and the links to everything we mentioned and go to slash tip to throw some money in. I'm not exactly sure when the next episode will be, but until then, I'm still Garion. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.